and welcome to The Trumpet, the official podcast of Elephant Room Productions. As always, I'm your host, Robert Jean Pelleccio. <laughs> I have a very excited guest in the studio today. Um, we, today, we're talking to Christopher Carter-Sanderson. That's the most enthusiastic entrance I've ever had a guest make on this show. Um, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. Thanks, Robert. I'll take my meds now. No, no worries. Um... I have, I've been on plenty this past week, as some would be able to hear from my voice. I'm slowly but surely coming back. Um, but uh, yeah, that's famous, a party. A party of... figures very importantly. A party really figures importantly in this play. So maybe you've been doing a little research. It does, yeah. Um, I actually, well, at the time of this record, um, I actually came back a couple days ago from a very, as the kids are saying, lit party. Uh, so I'll on air, uh, I'll on air give a shout out and another hearty congratulations to our artistic director Lauren M. Shover. Uh, I apologize, Lauren M. Krebs, uh, who, just, who just got married this past weekend. Uh, salute to you! I'm happy I was there uh, to see you guys off. Um, congratulations, so- Mazel Tov. Well, today we're going to be talking about Christopher's play, uh, Eugenics, Oregon, um, that we had the pleasure of reading here in Philly a couple weeks ago. Uh, But before we jump into that, uh, Christopher, if I could just pick your brain a little bit about your theater background. Sure. Uh, Well, uh, in a nutshell, um, I've been doing theater my whole life. um, As a child, uh, I just, apparently a lot of my play was literally theater I, I had boxes of props i didn't know they were props but i had boxes of props in my garage and i had kids over from the neighborhood and made up scenarios and we improved our way through them and then had notes and then did them again and um you know by the time i got to college i had it took a really important mentor to say hey man listen you need to like make sure that theater is a part of your life and not <laughs> that your life <laughs> that your life is not subsumed to the theater because you're about to get eaten and i think it was really timely and so with a variety of mixed results, I've sallied forth out into real life uh, a number of times <laughs> in life, including to the to be in the Navy for a while. So oh wow, you know, well it, it all went as badly as you might imagine. I mean, I'm you know I, I ended up writing a musical in a concrete bunker in Kuwait. Uh, you know, the, the good news is it was then produced at Fringe in New York uh, off Broadway and went pretty well. But you know, it's um. <laughs> It's been a lot of uh, improbable scenarios where the theater kid has sh- showed up to try, to try to be in real life. I actually uh, got a Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal for lecturing on American theater to uh, Gulf State National uh, students, which is really weird. I admit it. It's odd, and I am the only person, I think, that has that medal for that reason. But, uh, you know, I really try. <laughs> Uh, my special warfare unit was inshore boat unit 22. Uh, so shout out to uh, Naval Coastal Warfare Squadron 21. We're like patrol boat guys. Um, and I did one. I did one deployment, um, which lasted a, a year. In uh, we were based in Kuwait. We had five missions, uh, which also included um, Dubai and uh, Ashwaba and the Gulf Oil platforms. Wow, that is incredibly impressive, and that is that is probably. Of guests I've talked to on this podcast, um, that is probably one of the uh, I'd say broadest journeys I've seen between 
previous uh, prior to playwriting. Well, not even prior to well, playwriting because it's kind of. I really was a playwright at the time. That's kind of yeah. my point. Like, it's it's you know, and I understand that I'm a weird weirdo, but the good news is I have 53 years of experience being weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, one way that so I'm really so weird you're perfected. I hope so. I mean, I'm literally, I'm 53. People are considering me an interesting emerging playwright. I wrote my first play in high school. Uh, you know, I've had a professional theater company in New York City for, yeah, what is it now, 26 years? So uh, it's a little weird. And these labels, uh, you know, all, um, well, at least from where I'm sitting, they all kind of, you know, show their limitations, you know. But that's also right. very much true as a bisexual person. You know, I've had 53 years of being completely bisexual. Uh, I'm in a committed, you know, marriage to um, Meredith, uh, my wife, shout out, who I love very much. And we just had our first kid. And, um, Congratulations. you know, it's, you know, to me, it's like, thank you very much. He's awesome. He's just 16 months old and uh, better late than never. He's awesome. Um, but, you know, I take the vows that I, I gave to her very seriously and, um, you know, you can call my sexuality weird. I mean, gay people have been have been, you know, telling me to get the fuck out of the closet for 53 years, more or less. Um, straight people have been saying ew, you know, for about 53 years. And but the bottom line is, to me, my sexuality seems quite natural because I'm sexually motivated towards the person who I'm deeply and desperately in love with. And I think that sounds pretty cool. Oh yeah, and it's uh, unfortunately, uh, and I mean, it's it's. I think we've probably discussed it on the podcast before, but. Uh... Yeah, it's un- it's unfortunately that our community is um, at times so open and accepting of uh, various groups, but in other specific instances, uh, it seems to be a challenge. <laughs> I don't understand why. But well, you know, you get used to reminding people that there's a B in that string of letters. <laughs> there's a B in there, guys. There's a B in there too. Um, but you know, it's, it's all good. And, and the problem is that people who are repressed, uh, are forced, you know, really quite brutally into imitating the, uh, tools of their oppressors, uh, because it seems to be the only way to empower themselves. And, um, you know, I'm just quoting Paolo Freire when I say that, you know, an oppressive system is defined by the fact that if the roles of oppressor and oppressor reverse, and it's still the same system, then it's an oppressive system. And what we have to do is change the roles and, I think that, you know, playwriting right now is deeply, deeply uh, invested in trying to do that. I think many of us miss the mark by flying over into propaganda of one kind or another. Um, right, right. You know, and, and really, it's hard, too, in the theater because, you know, uh, nothing is new in the theater, but everything is new every night. And, um, you know, everybody wants to do yet another production of many wonderful plays. And I, I would say that list includes, you know, Music Man, but it also includes the Laramie Project, you know, because you know they're going to work. And it's just such a joy right. to walk in and know that it's going to work. But that is the opposite of what the, the you know, new plays and what the playwrights are engaged in. Um, you know, I think it's a little bit offset by um, sort of power structures in the theater shifting towards the playwright. But uh, that's a whole other subject. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, that's one of the things that... Um, at Elephant Room Productions, uh, we've had two very successful uh, years of Fringe uh, with completely original pieces. And it's very daunting yeah. because when you look yep. around at Fringe, like, Fringe, yes, is the time to do new things and the time to try new things. But there's always, like you said, there's always that thought in the back of your head of, 
well, I know Laramie Project has sold tickets before. I well, know let me people... give you my perspective on the yeah. fringe. Here's the thing, um, because you know I am old, and I you know oh, really cut, posh. I cut my chops in in off off Broadway in the '90s in New York, where you know the Lower East Side was uh, you know literally could be dangerous, and um, you know Ludlow Street was uh, you know. Um, the Axis Monday of off off Broadway was like literally six blocks where there was like twelve different theater spaces. You could walk into a bar at midnight, and by twelve thirty, you could have a show uh, conceived, cast. You could have a playwright commissioned to write it, and you could already have a space agreed to do it across the street. So it was an incredibly fertile time, and it was you know. But then then like there was one bar open, then another bar open. These days, it's like you know six blocks of really really expensive bars. But my point is that, you know, when the fringe started, the rest of us were like, okay, so you're talking about doing a lot of really inexpensive, small experimental works in August when we do that year round. Like that's kind of all we do. And people come from, you know, people come from Broadway and do these little shows and then they go from these little shows to Broadway and there's this whole ecosystem. So what really happened is, is the larger ecosystem shrank and sort of died, this very small, concentrated thing of fringe and fringe festivals sort of erupted out into the world. And I think that they really did well. I think the fringe idea has thrived um, in a lot of places. But, and, but on the other hand, it's also succeeded in making really a kind of ghetto. It's like a whole bunch of people come, there's a lot of excitement, and then, but it's like you could be really famous in the fringe, but then then what? You know, fringe ends, and right. then what do you do? And I went to I went to school with folks from the Philadelphia and, and all the great theaters there, and yeah, I'm I'm sort of familiar with it because of all the wonderful people I know who've who've sort of been born there, and kind of, you know, the genesis of a lot of really excellent theaters in Philadelphia. Wow, it's definitely been an unbelievable experience to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, but transitioning onward, uh, speaking of uh, speaking of experimental pieces and uh, mm. plays that kind of break the normal structure of storytelling, uh, mm. let's transition into Eugenics, Oregon. <laughs> um, um, so if you could just take a moment, if you could just set up the play for our listeners and then give a little introduction sure. to the scene that we're going to hear. Sure. Uh, well, um, uh, Eugenics, Oregon is a, is a work in progress. And, um, you know, I'm very fortunate to have uh, late in my life gone to the Yale School of Drama, where I, uh, I, I was there as a director, and, and, but I got lucky in that I was there with some amazing playwrights who were not only incredibly talented, but are incredibly warm and generous about sharing what their process was. And so I really feel like I had a lot of playwriting teachers who were my fellow students. And, um, you know, they introduced me to this idea of sort of wrestling with identity and yet trying to find universal message in the most gritty and difficult details of, of one's identity. So, you know, in, in looking and sort of trying to turn into my own, you know, unfathomable and difficult pain of existence, <laughs> you know, I'm faced, with two, I'm faced with two things. One, which I think maybe I already demonstrated I'm a little bit easier with, which is my bisexuality. But the other one is, you know, my, I, I can tell you a long list of really famous people who are white, who I'm related to in the South. Um, I can't tell you a single black person who I'm related to in the South, although I must be related to many because 
uh, the white male slave owners that I'm related to certainly raped their female slaves. And, and to me, those children were that man's children. And the incredible, um, horrific genocide that was, uh, you know, uh, just forced on these uh, poor people, uh, you know, it, it horrifies me. And, um, you know, certainly we're going we're gonna to look into, uh, we're going to look into to the, a third thing in, in the sort of raft of pain of which I'm sort of trying to plumb for universality, which is my uh, sibling relationship. So when we look into the scene, we're going to look at scene one, and um, it's going to be a good example of, of a way that a playwright needs to unpack things a bit. Um, and what I tell playwrights when I'm teaching them is anything that's really important, the characters need to talk about, right? And that can be daunting from the playwright's point of view. So what's going to happen in scene one is, is a, 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 a brother and a sister are going to start talking. And they're so close that they have almost a twin language kind of relationship where when they say okay to each other, it's got a lot of different meanings. And of course, you know, in my past, I've worked with actors who've used the Sanford Miser technique. Those guys can make the most weird little word have a billion different meanings. And so when these when this man and woman say okay, okay to each other, it's meant to be a feast for actors. What it turned out to be was the most confusing thing that the actors were presented with, right? And the reason <laughs> for that, right, right? The reason right. for that is that I didn't see my own, my own dictum, which is it's important, the characters need to talk about it. So when you listen to this scene and listen to these wonderful actors sort of wrestle with, why are these characters saying okay to each other? And why is this the first line in the play? Um, you know, I can tell you that the rewrite of it, it's where both of them say that to each other, and then they literally start talking about how they've been saying okay back and forth to each other since, like, they could barely talk, and that it's always been kind of a twin language for them, and that other people kind of think it's weird. And that actually ends up being a really nice moment for me to segue into Gail sort of, you know, saying to John, you know, that's not the only way you're weird, little brother. You know, because as you'll see as the play goes on, it's John's sort of weirdness is the, the vein in which the play digs into the idea of um, the horror of being uh, uh, related to uh, everything that's, that's wrong with the South, as Gail will say later in the play. But uh, just setting up scene one as um, a way that you can write a better play by listening to some great actors uh, struggle with what you haven't quite finished writing. All right. Well, thank you. Let's take a listen. John is in a nice downstairs living room in Eugene, Oregon. Okay. Okay? I said okay. Gail enters carrying a wine glass. Okay. I should have brought you a glass. No need. Much need? Please. Baby brother, you please. Please tell me you just walked in here a minute ago and have not been standing in here by yourself for the last hour since I lost track of you out there. Wait, never mind. I just walked in here and have not been standing here by myself since you lost track of me out there 58 minutes and 30 seconds ago. John? Because I walked around the outside of the house first. I'm not lying. You walked around the outside of the house? You mean, no, you mean you walked through the bushes away from Sarah in her ripped jeans and frilly? Yes. John? Yes. It's been a year. One year. A little year. In Eugene, Oregon, arts, beauty, the capital of the hippie diaspora. Oregon. What? You said Oregon. It's Oregon. Oregon. You're not from here. What? You shouldn't say it like you are from here. They say Oregon here. You're from Virginia. John, 
You don't sound like you're from Virginia either. I just nobody cares. Well, I... No. Body. Cares. When was the first time you tried to get me to socialize? Brought me back to people. Do you remember? No, but I am sure you're going to tell me. <laughs> and what I was wearing. And what we had for breakfast. And what the radio was playing. No, it's funny. I, I can't remember. You can't remember. The famous prom incident. Birthday parties. A block party with hamburgers. Not the first time. No. Oh. Anyway, you usually start talking about people you think I should be friends with now, and why I should be friends with them, or that you think they want to be friends with me, or... Sarah likes you. Everybody likes you. It's as infuriating as it was whenever that first time you actually, for once, can't remember was. You hang around. People like you. You leave. Hamburgers. Whatever. Gone. It's not like it's worked out for me too well. Well, at least you haven't eaten any Chef Boyardee SpaghettiOs right out of the can since you got here. That you would know of. John. John! Sorry, seriously. I'm not stupid, and I'm not ungrateful, you know that. And I never choose to walk away from people. I just start thinking about something, and the next thing I know... You thought your way through the bushes. I was thinking about Dad. He'd be out there flirting. If he was alive, he'd be pouring drinks and laughing. Not a care in the world. That you know of. John! I know, I know. He'd be telling the story of his famous yellow jeepster. It's been a year, and you've got your own money, and you can get out. I'd miss you. Not sure if you ever miss anyone. I called you, remember? I feel like Dad still has something to say. You've got your chills. I guess so. John. You're going to kick me out? No, I'm going to ask you to come outside, and... I want to talk to Dad. Tomorrow. After the party. Tomorrow. You always say that. Alright, fine, you're right. But I never go back on my word, do I? No. Never. Get outside. Stay outside. Eat one of the brownies Sarah brought it when everyone else does. Uh, brought when everyone else does. And tomorrow, we can talk about that all you want. Sarah is a grad student. I promise you. You promise. And by talk about Dad, I mean I will listen to you talk about Dad. Sarah is a grad student in chemistry. All you want. Sarah is a grad student in biochemistry. We're in Eugene, Oregon. And everyone is going to eat the brownies she made. Let's go. I promise. Eat the brownies at the same time. Eat the brownies. Come on. Okay. And we're back. Um, yeah. So. Yay. For, Thank so, you, actors. Yay. <laughs> so be before, we even <laughs> before we even talk about... Um, the the process of writing this piece um i just want to bring up that we have had our share in this program we've been doing this program for about uh all about two years now and it's a great program great program thank you thank you very much uh we enjoy uh having this opportunity and getting all of these new wonderful plays um what stood out to me about this one is that um it's not. It's definitely not a traditional style of storytelling. Um, without giving too it's much funny. away. It's funny you should say that because I think you're. I think you're plumbing a generational gap, uh, which is like I think your generation. What your generation calls traditional storytelling is not traditional storytelling in the theater at all. I think what your generation calls traditional storytelling is film, and Actually, even more so, very realistic film. I, actually, you're you're exactly right because I was um, I was actually thinking about um, some of sometimes when uh, I, in addition to being an actor, I'm also a director, and sometimes when I I've never directed film, 
but sometimes when I get a play, I can't help but imagine how I direct it. And with a play like this, I actually uh, kind of, I had both parts of my brain thinking through the staging of this, one half of my brain thinking through how I would stage it uh, on stage, and another part of my brain just kind of visualizing it um, in kind of a film medium. Uh, and it's yep. kind of interesting how um, it. This might be not be the right word to use for it, but there are very, there are a couple moments in this piece that are, I would say, quite cinematic in terms of their the the stakes, the uh, the heightened drama of the scene. Sure. One particularly at the end of uh, Marshall and John having a very heated conversation. Um, that has, let's say, some specific repercussions. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh. And another, another interesting thing about it is there are, there are multiple moments in this piece that are very real and are very visceral and are very grounded, particularly some monologues and some character relationships. And there are some other moments that are very surreal, um, and I'm, of course, referring to scenes involving gummy bears. Um, yes, but you see, to me, those, those scenes are theatrical. Like, this oh, is a right. theater. This is, this is how theater has been told since the ancient Greeks. I mean, the gummy bears are nothing more than a crane that lifts up a character from one side and brings them over to the front. It's deus ex machina. It's the oldest theatrical gotcha. trick in the book, you know, and... But I think that what you're really driving into is something more than just sort of a cliched argument of film versus theater. I, because, you know, I think that our touchstone for this might be Wes Anderson's work because, you know, he does a lot. You know, of course, when you and I watch it, we're both like, wow, this is so theater. Yes. This is theater. Like, this oh, is yeah, a, even to the point of being like, it's a little proscenium, tiny model, you know, puppet theater, for God's sake. And he talks a lot about wanting to do theater but never having the guts to do it or whatever. And I he think does that's how he, 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 <laughs> he does. He could probably yeah. unpack it a lot. Oh, um, yeah. But, you know, the thing is for me, like, this play, like, it, it's a theater piece. And the weird thing is that by making absolutely sure that I was living and breathing in the theater and in the, like, being in a room with people who are alive and who are, who you literally have to rely on, like, if the audience doesn't buy the gummy bear uh, joke or the gummy bear trick or whatever you want to call it, the gummy bear deus ex gummy bear, right? Um, you know, well, before stuff, we go even like, further, just, have... uh, why, don't, why don't I actually just add, I just realized I just glossed past this completely. Why don't I ask you to explain the mechanism of the gummy bears so that people listening know what the hell I'm talking about? Because I just realized I know what I'm talking about because I've read it, but uh, others might be confused. Well, you know, without spoiling it too much, uh, there's a uh, there's some things that need to happen in this play in terms of transporting uh, people. Here's the thing, you know, I noticed that when people are having conversations about um, there's something about place in the yeah. human experience. It's really important. And the amazing thing about the theater is you can literally walk into the to a dark room, look at a bunch of people, and say some words that make the audience feel like they're in a new place with you. Right. right. This, this castle has a pleasant seat. I mean, all Duncan has to do is look around and say that, and right. suddenly you're outside of a castle. It's amazing. So, like, I thought, let me, let me say that the 
realistic uh, mechanism of getting people from a place where they're far away and safe, but they're talking about a place where dangerous and difficult things happen. Like the mechanism of getting from one to the other is virtually uninteresting to me, but right. the, 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 the instantaneous getting there, which the theater can do, like boom, now we're in Virginia because we were in Oregon three seconds ago. Like just to be able to look out of the audience and say, now we're there. I wanted to point to that. So the way I pointed to it was one of the, you know, intelligent, uh, clever, interesting um, characters in the play is a, a woman who's a scientist. And she talks about working with really long, complex molecules, one of which, you know, and you're kind of thinking, well, okay, so you're talking about a biology major who makes really good pot or a chemistry major who makes really good LSD. And I'm like, yes, I'm playing on that trope. But she actually makes a long molecule that she puts into a gummy bear. And the conceit of the play in part is that when she and her friends take the gummy bear, it actually transports them through space and time to um, not really, not a lot of time, but it like literally picks them up from eugenics, Oregon, you know, safe, hippie capital of the world and takes them to a small, you know, dark cemetery in the middle of Virginia, in the middle of the South, right? So um, to me, that makes her special and magic. And of course, it makes her fall right into the tropes of a Japanese no drama because she establishes herself as the priestess who can kind of communicate with other worlds or okay. kind of make otherworldly things happen, you know? Well, then I guess that's my next question then, which is uh, I have I have some limited um, experience with no. I had, uh, I, I'm had a graduate of uh, Bloomsburg University. I've mentioned on this podcast before, most of the... Uh, Shout out to Bloomsburg. <laughs> Shout and, out to um, Bloomsburg. Uh, and one of the things we, uh, one of the biggest takeaways of working with the Bloomsburg Theater Department is that we had a very good relationship with a local regional theater called the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble. Um, cool. And we would actually share a space with them. We would perform our main stage shows at their theater, which was an incredible That's a great experience. way to learn. We were, oh, it was incredible. We were performing on a like we weren't just in we used to be uh before i got there they were in a hall in uh like you know a lecture hall basically um mm -hmm. it was a theater but it was a theater kind of built for music or built for you know presentations versus stage uh, uh -huh. so having the opportunity believe to be me on, i know what you mean oh yeah <laughs> so one, another thing is we get to work closely with the ensemble members and one of them elizabeth dowd um is very well versed in no and mm. uh good she occasionally would do some demonstrations for us do some teaching of the no style and in my senior cool. year we did a production of burial of thebes which is um uh it's an adaptation of uh antigone and mm. our director decided to blend the greek costume style and the greek language and the greek staging with uh, a no presentation so our costumes were kind of no inspired the stage was a square with the pillars um and a lot mm -hmm. of our movements were we had to really learn how to be very specific with the movements mm -hmm. um yep. do you have a do you have experience writing or performing no or what what about no well, it's funny. inspired you it's funny you should mention that it's um my first professional production in New York City in 1986 was called um, uh, Amy, uh, and it was an adaptation of uh, The Lady Aoi by Yukio Mishima. 
Um, most people know who Yukio Mishima is, but not that he wrote plays, but he did. He wrote a few, and um, he called the Lady Aoi a modern no drama. And so that's my literary inspiration. What he, what Yukio Mishima did was he took the the literary like uh, conventions of a no drama and just put it in a, a much more contemporary for him uh, contemporary time period, uh, which I think was the fifties. Um, so for me, what I did is just, you know, as I thought about this material and I thought about, you know, the freedoms that I needed to take, uh, that I wanted to take with it, I suddenly realized that the freedoms I was asking for in terms of people uh, seeing and interacting with ghosts and not really being sure when they are, but then kind of figuring out to be to their surprise that they are, which is a, a part of no drama. Um, and that there's a female priestess, you know, who can kind of handle the between the worlds things where uh, whereas other people kind of can't or are having problems. And also a lot of no drama, you know, it handles like pain and difficulty and suffering uh, as well. So what I did was I, I took the, um, what I would call the literary conventions that Yukio Mishima extracted from no drama and just put them into, you know, I just went ahead and sort of felt like I was already halfway there. I just went ahead and followed through in a way that I like to think is a kind of nod to Wes Anderson and to a lot of theater in the sense that, as well, in the sense that, you know, for someone who knows liter no drama from a literary point of view, I think they would be amused and entertained by the way that my play uh, sort of plays off those conventions or utilizes those conventions. Whereas, of course, it's got to work for people who don't even know what that means and didn't really understand why they had a subtitle at all, right? Right. No, I mean, it, it, and it definitely, uh, it definitely shows through. Um, so, my next question is uh, about the actual uh, process of where you go from here, because uh, you mentioned sure. right at the start about how hearing the play aloud kind of already started to work its way into the play. Um, how did sure. our process well, of bringing the voices to life? Uh, impact your play uh, in a way that maybe a sure. just kind of written feedback wouldn't? Well, I set myself the uh, task of writing this story in 10,000 words or less to start with. And so by the time I was finished, I was feeling that I already had a, um, I was feeling a little bit stifled, like it was too short. And um, so that would be roughly translate to an hour. Right of stage time. And I'm really, my feeling is that it needs to be 90 minutes long. So, um, you know, I was really inspired, you know, recently by, um, uh, possessing Harriet Kyle Bass's play here at Syracuse at Syracuse stage, because it was, a, it was super intense. It dealt with slavery in an incredibly great way, beautifully written. And it was 90 minutes, you know, and I was like, yes, that is, you know, right. eugenics organ needs to be 90 minutes long and how it's going to get there is like, I was like, well, there are different ways and different things that could happen. And so um, what you're reading aloud for me was to see which things were really important to me that I had not written into the play yet. And um, the, the twin language that we talked about is uh, one of them. Um, there's, there's other examples here and there. Um, and so my current rewriting process is to just go through. So what I did was I listened to the play. I took, I stopped it and took notes as to what, uh, the actors weren't getting from the text that wasn't their fault. That was that I needed to write that. You know, now I'm a big believer that really good plays ask questions and don't project answers. 
So, you know, I'm not, there are things that are going to remain, you know, un, unspoken and that I think should. I mean, it's, it's like I usually, like I tell my classes, you know, it's like Hamlet is the best play ever written, in my opinion, and it has huge flaws and huge problems. And they're like, what do you mean? It's perfect. And I'm like, look, man, Mrs. Polonius. Where's Mrs. Polonius? They don't mention Mrs. Polonius. This kid is going to college for the first time. The, this man's daughter maybe is going to get married to the prince, and he's, and they don't mention their mom. What? Sorry, yeah. that's a flaw. You know, but it's one that has to be there because it makes lingering questions in the subconscious about the figure of a mother, and so it kind of amplifies you know uh, Hamlet's you know relationship with his mother. Sometimes flaws have you know purposes, but sometimes they don't. And in the case of your reading, I found stuff where I was like okay, that's, I need to give those actors more more, so that they understand that this is important, that that's important. So my first set of notes is those. Go through and write that. Um, I'm about halfway through those rewrites, and I'm thinking that that's going to get me almost where I need to be. Um, but there's a, I think that there are two monologues in, um, in scene five, and I think uh, one of them uh, about the character Chin and sort of his... I need to find the things that are in that monologue. I need to put into the story a bit more in terms of the impact on him. Right. And then, uh, and I, I heard that in the reading. And then uh, the other thing, which is, you know, where Gail kind of, the character of Gail, the sister kind of speaks for me when she says, I'm related by blood to everything that's wrong with the South. Um, you know, I need to, I want to unpack that more and show a bit more of, a, of her actually not handling things well. So the audience is kind of left uh, sort of in a way have, helping her figure out what went on. Because, of course, my, my objective, like all players, I think, is to have the audience like thinking and sort of working through the, the, the drama, you know, you know, well into the rest of their lives, if, if you can possibly, you know, make it happen. I mean, as a director, I'm sure you can relate because we, we often say, you know, we want the final act of the play to be in, right. in the car on the way home in the cafe around the corner, the next time people are having drinks, or, or you know, we, we really want to make that feeling that, that this art lives in their lives, and I'm trying to help write that into the play. And the reading really helped me find that, you know, there are things I need to give the actors that I just that I know are important, and if I was directing it, I could go through and say, no, 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 actually, that's like a play line. You can't do that if you're trying to write a play that lives on its own. That's an important step for me as a player, um, because all my other plays that I've written I've directed, you know, um, right. and that, that was a strength in some ways. It was certainly a strength for the musical of mine that's produced at the Fringe in New York, but it's all, but it would be a weakness if I want this, this uh, story to really go out into the culture more. And then other things, you know, it's the, the written feedback I got back that were, you know, they were like, what the hell is the point of this? You know, cut it. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to make the point of that. And it's not going to be by cutting it. <laughs> right. I actually want to thank you then for your, um, uh, for that aspect of not answering everything, because I I have seen the opposite in plays before. I've uh, I, you know I there, there's moments where I find myself even in published produced a million times plays where I'm sitting there, kind of wishing I wish I could have gotten there myself without uh, <laughs> without someone telling me. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I appreciate. Couldn't agree more. And I, I appreciate that uh, there are there are some secrets to be found and discovered and that there's there's a chance that two people could come away from this play um, with two different ideas and not necessarily both be wrong. Well, now you've hit on it. That's the thing I learned as a director is 
that it's incredible paradox of the theater that we want people to walk out of the room and we want to say to them, kind of a, kind of a thought experiment, we want to say, did that have a lot of meaning for you? We want them to say, oh my God, it had a huge amount of meaning. And then we want everyone to say that. And then we want to say, what was that meaning? And we want every single person to have a different answer based on who they are and how they reacted to what they saw and heard. And so that paradox, you know, I felt, you know, that I learned in directing, I'm trying to bring into playwriting to be able to offer to other directors, you know, when they really get into the juice of it to allow the questions to be asked in a really strong way, I hope. God knows I've got some serious, uh, serious uh, examples to live up to because the playwrights I went to the Yale School of Drama with are, was a bunch of geniuses. And I like to think they taught me pretty well, but also, man, trying to write plays that are even half as good as theirs, not easy. <laughs> well, I think that um, this play is definitely in good hands with you. And I oh, am you. very excited to see where it goes next. Um, well, I mean, there are some practical things, too. I applied to the Juilliard program. We'll see if they like it. Um, Pulse Theater Ensemble in New York runs a playwrights lab. And the end of it is a professional reading for industry. And I got into that. So the, you know, the 90-minute the version that you guys are helping me read will eventually be read in New York by professional actors for the industry uh, at Pulse. And uh, you know, I'll certainly invite you back to that. And um, you know, thank you for, for helping me grow the play. Absolutely. Um... And well, thank you again for giving us this opportunity in the first place. Uh, before we part, I always like to end my podcasts with uh, some fun little theater question, especially if the play is uh, uh, you know, needs a mental unpacking. Um, yep. So my fun theater question for you would be, um, what characters in what play do you think would benefit the most from having the gummy bear transport technology? <laughs> oh well, of course, all the, uh, um, the all the mortals in a Midsummer Night's Dream need the gummy bear technology. Oh my God! Of no course they do. About that, <laughs> because then they'd be fairies, basically, and they'd be able to compete with the damn fairies. It'd be awesome. <laughs> that is that is an incredible play when you think about it. Off topic, um, I have always Midsummer has always been one of my favorite Shakespeare plays because it's a play that by any by any explanation should not work they are three completely separate stories in that play that should have uh, nothing to do with each other right, and yet they do somehow they reason. do no no they do for one reason and that reason's name is Bottom he's the only That's character it. that goes through all three worlds and please don't get me started talking about Midsummer. is Robert I've directed a Midsummer Night's Dream I've directed a Midsummer Night's Dream 26 times wow uh uh, my first New York Times review in 1994 was for my company's uh, production, Gorilla Refs, production of Midsummer Night's Dream in Washington Square Park. It was by now head, uh, was by Ben Brantley, who's now the, the, the head critic at the New York Times, and it really launched uh, my career. But it was so popular that I just directed it summer after summer after summer. And then people asked me to do it other places. I directed it in a park in Oslo, Norway, I'm not lying, uh, an armory in Scranton, Pennsylvania. You know, believe me. Oh God! Don't get me started talking about Midsummer Night's Dream. That, that's fair. That's fair. I I also have a love of it. I've been in it twice. I uh, assistant direct. I've assistant directed it uh, for teens, which is really fun. Um, oh yeah. Uh, they are no. they're teens, of course. The lovers are teens, of course. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually. Um, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, look, I'll tell you they, one big problem with one big problem with directing Midsummer Night's Dream every summer is that eventually you turn 30 and you're like, 
hey, I'm going to go cast the young lovers. Yeah, they're young lovers. They'll be my age. And then you're like, wait a minute. Uh, no. um, and that's the great thing about the theater is that it speaks and speaks across all generations. And I really thank you for uh, for inviting me so warmly into Elephant Room. And this has been a great uh, podcast, great conversation, and you really helped me play a lot. Thanks so much. Oh my God! Thank you so much. That is a, that is wonderful feedback to get. Um, well, Christopher, again, thank you so much for coming on and actually talking to me today. Um, I'm very excited to see where Eugenics Oregon goes next. And as for any playwrights out there who have uh, plays to send with us, uh, no matter what state they're in, please, please, please send them to erpsubmissions at gmail.com. Remember, every story deserves to be heard, so join our Elephant Herd today. Until next time, this is Robert Jean Pelleccio, signing off.